it really is a joy for me to be able to, to be with you all and to sing uh, songs of praise together uh, and um, to have a time of fellowship with you. I don't know about you guys. I'm a little run down, uh, run down this week. I'm just a little tired, and that's okay. Right? But being able to be with a church family, hearing your voices, hearing you guys sing, seeing your faces is something that really gets me excited. It gives me a little bit of energy. And uh, so I'm really, really, like, I really mean it when I say it. I'm really glad to see all of you here this evening, for those of you who are in person and for those of you who are online as well. Um, we are continuing through our study of the Gospel of Mark this evening, and we will find ourselves in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So Mark chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. Um, if, so, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Mark 3, and we'll start reading in verse 1. And Mark tells us, And he, that is Jesus, entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel together with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to be together, to sing songs of worship, to hear your word preached, and uh, to have fellowship afterwards. And we're grateful, Lord, that we have a common bond in Christ that encourages us to persevere through the hard times, that calls us out to grow more in godliness, uh, that um, just continues to uh, just build this church that, you, that you've placed here in San Francisco. Uh, these common bonds that you've, you've given us, Lord, they're everything. We might not always be together. We might not always hang out. We might not always be able to have the types of spiritual conversations that we would like to have when we want to have them. But yet... Because of the common bond we have in Christ, we know that we are not alone and that when your body does come together to gather, we can be confident of the fact that, uh, that you're still doing something, that uh, you're using even our little interactions to grow the body, to advance the kingdom, to make your glory known. And so, Father, we pray that uh, you would be with us this evening. For those of us who are tired, that you would give us the strength and the energy, the mental clarity that we need to, to, uh, to worship you uh, this evening. Thank you, Father, uh, for this time. We pray that you would be pleased through the preaching of your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, in our interactions with other people, we rarely set out to do harm to others. Right? We don't wake up in the morning thinking, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to go see my friend, and I'm going to give him a beating. Right? We don't think that. We rarely decide in our hearts that we're going to make life difficult for other people. And though many of us do not seek to intentionally harm other people, the fact of the matter is we will inevitably hurt other people in our lives. The hurt could come from something that we said, or perhaps something that we didn't say. Perhaps the hurt can come from something that we did, or maybe something that we didn't do. The hurt could come from a failure to meet someone's expectations of us, whether those expectations were stated to us, or whether they were just expectations that we were unaware of. We all have a capacity to hurt other people in this life because we're all sinners, right? None of us are good. 
And because of our innate sin in our hearts, we will hurt other people. Now, normally, the correct response to hurting others should be to offer a real apology to the hurt person that recognizes our personal responsibility for the hurt that we have inflicted. Now, um, you know, we can talk about whether you know, we were unaware of it and all those other different nuances some other time. But let's just say, for the sake of tonight, this is something that we've done. And it, and it was, uh, we are responsible, um, in other words, we are responsible for the hurt that we caused. It's not something that was inadvertent. We are responsible for it. Now, normally, we would give that real apology, right? We would own up to our part. And we would try and make it right with the other person. But a self-defense response that seems to be a little more popular today comes in the form of statements like this. I'm sorry. But let me assure you that I had nothing but good intentions in my heart. Have you heard that? Has someone said that to you? Did you see it on reality TV? My goal is not to zero in on the legitimacy of any, uh, on, on that kind of apology at this moment. But what I do want to focus on is that idea of good intentions. Right? I'm sorry, but I had, I had nothing but good intentions in my heart. Right? As that more popular statement seems to acknowledge, somewhat acknowledges, good intentions can still hurt other people. Right? Good intentions can still hurt other people. It doesn't matter whether you meant to or not. Good intentions can still go too far if we are not careful. This is an observation that can apply to the Pharisees. In churches today, right, when we hear the word Pharisee, we're just like, ooh, those are the bad guys. Right? Those are the bad guys. We don't like those guys. Um, it's, so, uh, their name is often synonymous with that of a hypocrite. And we're, we're prone to look at the Pharisees as evil because of how their actions influence the Jews to kill Jesus. So basically what I'm saying to you is their reputation is well earned. Now what I'm about to say is not at all an endorsement of the Pharisees or trying to soften any of the things that they did. But let me take you back to Jesus' day for a moment. Let me remind you that the Pharisees were actually well respected by the people. They were the conservatives. They were the ones who were trying to encourage their countrymen, the people of Israel, to repent of their, of their sin, to repent of their godless ways, and to follow after God faithfully. And as a result, because they wanted their countrymen to love God and to obey Him and to make God's glory known, they put all these extra laws in place to prevent people from sinning on those obvious laws, obvious sins. And, you know, these things, though they were oppressed, these extra laws, though they were oppressive, were put in place with good intentions. They were put in place with good intentions. While good intentions can certainly help people accomplish a great deal of good, good intentions, if poorly thought through or poorly executed, can do more harm than good. In fact, there is a common saying, probably some of you have heard it, which says that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. In our passage this evening, we're going to see how the originally good intentions of the Pharisees eventually became a system that turned people away from God rather than directed them to God. And we're going to observe Jesus provide correction to this system, to these Pharisees, through three scenes, three scenes that help Christians embrace a proper understanding of God's heart. Okay, three scenes that help Christians embrace a proper understanding of God's heart. This is kind of a, more of a, um, uh, 
Well, I mean, yeah, it's a scene outline, so it's not exactly going to tie in, but I'll tie it in for you. So uh, we're going to see the first scene of Jesus' authority challenge. The second scene is going to be Jesus' challenge to the system. And then third, Jesus' correction scene. Okay, so these are the three scenes that we're going to look at. If you, don't get, if you don't get this down all at once, don't worry, it's coming back in the slides. Okay, so the first thing that we're going to see is Jesus' authority challenge. Jesus' authority challenge. Verse 1. And he entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And so, as you can see, it, we're kind of like jumping just straight into it. Right? Mark doesn't really give us too many extra details. He, you know, um, his his uh, way of writing his gospel is very newspaper-like. It's just boom, 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 boom. Right? He's, he's, just, he's really just trying to get us right into it. And so uh, Mark doesn't really give us too many details uh, as to when this happens. Uh, we don't know how soon this event occurs after Jesus declares himself to be Lord of the Sabbath at the end of Mark 2, nor does Mark provide us with any geographical details to help us know where is this synagogue? Um, you know, which city is this? Who, what are the pe- who are the people that are there? What are they like? We don't know some of these things from Mark's account. But one of the cool things is, with the Gospels, they have parallels. Right? We, we can have the different Gospel authors covering the same event, and they'll do so from a different angle. They'll do so from a different camera lens, if you will. Uh, and so, uh, Luke provides us with some details that fill in the gaps for us Luke 6, Luke 6, 6, gives us a little more details in terms of what's going on right now. Okay, so Luke 6, 6, it says here, Now it happened that on another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. Okay, so this is not... The same Sabbath where Jesus and his disciples were walking through the grain field. Uh, we don't know how much time has elapsed still, but we know that there has been some time that has passed. Right? And so on another Sabbath, he enters into the synagogue. And um, not only that, not only is he visiting, right? Because if you, let's say you were to travel down to Irvine this week, right? and you were to go visit a church, you would maybe visit some of our friends over at Berean. Right? And if you went to go visit some of our friends at Berean, um, they wouldn't say, oh, welcome from San Francisco Bible. Do you have a word to speak to us today? Right? They would just say, welcome to our church, glad to have you, and then they would go about their business. Right? But that's not, that's not the case in, uh, for, for ancient times. In ancient times, whenever a traveling rabbi was going uh, to a new synagogue, they would often give them an opportunity to share a word from the Lord. Uh, we see that in Luke 4, where Jesus enters into a synagogue, and they, hand him the, and they hand him a scroll, and he reads from Isaiah, and then he tells them, what I just read to you this day has been fulfilled in your presence. Right? And so this is something that Jesus has often done. He goes to different synagogues, and he teaches there. Um, he, he teaches the word there. And it is as Jesus is teaching in this particular synagogue probably a synagogue in the Galilee region, um, maybe even Capernaum, um, that the biblical authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, draw our attention to this man whose right hand is withered. We're not sure how his hand got that way, but his hand is visibly damaged. It's visibly damaged. It's visibly deformed. It's not a typical hand. Um, Likely, it was shriveled up. Maybe there was some atrophy that was there. Um, maybe he even held it in a certain way that made it even more obvious to people that there was something wrong with his right hand. Okay. And this next thing I'm about to say is not anything against you left-handed people. But typically speaking, in, uh, in ancient culture, most people were right-handed. Most people were right-handed. So in order to do any kind of work or to, to make a living, you, your dominant hand needed to be your right hand. And so having this injury on his right hand where it's atrophied, where it's withered, where it's not typical is a problem for him. It's going to be a problem for him. It's a significant 
injury. It's a debilitating injury that likely, no matter, you know, um, depending on how long it's been since he had the injury, it likely would have, been, uh, would have prevented him from being able to work. Right? He might have had to actually resort to begging because his right hand was so damaged. Now, think back to what we talked about last week in terms of what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. Right? The Pharisees had all these rules about what constitutes work on the Sabbath. And at least when it comes to taking care of people, healing people, um, just helping someone who has a non-life-threatening injury was not allowed on the Sabbath. So this man's withered hand is not exactly a problem for the Pharisees, right? They look at him like, okay, well, you're not dying, so you're fine, right? Obviously, he's not fine, but they look at him like, you're fine, you'll live, don't worry about it, okay? And so um, the Pharisees, right, think back to this, in their good intention in trying to shield the Sabbath, right, and trying to make sure that nobody violates the Sabbath, put up all these extra laws, all these extra rules to make sure that nobody did any work on the Sabbath so that they could keep it holy, so that they could, uh, so that we're, they could make sure that they set aside time in their weeks to worship the Lord, right? That's what they wanted to do. That was their good intention. But as they begin to nitpick at uh, what constitutes work and what does not constitute work. They go, they get too cute. They get too fine. And basically only that medical attention that preserves someone's life was acceptable for any kind of uh, care for someone who was hurt. Right? If they're not in any immediate danger of dying, then you leave them alone. Right? Which means that you know if you dislocated your, your elbow or your wrist or something like that, and it's hanging off in a weird, uh, in a weird way, they're like, yeah, you're fine, you'll live. We'll see you tomorrow. It's not very compassionate, is it? Allows for more suffering to occur in the, with the guise of, oh, but we're just focused on the Lord today. So don't worry about your injury. Just worship God, worship Yahweh. So, yeah, this man's withered hand, it doesn't qualify for help. He doesn't get to get any help whatsoever. Verse 2. Verse 2 of Mark chapter 3. And they, in context, it's the Pharisees, and they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Okay, so Jesus is teaching in this synagogue. All eyes were on him. Not only because he's popular, not only because he's famous, but, or because he's teaching even, but because the Pharisees and, and the scribes, they knew that Jesus had a track record of healing. They knew that Jesus had a track record of flaunting their Sabbath rules, of not caring about observing their extra Sabbath rules. So Jesus wasn't guilty of violating the law that God put in place. He was guilty of violating the Pharisees' extra laws, right? The things that are the hedge that were supposed to prevent people from violating the actual command in the scriptures. And in fact, Matthew's account of this, uh, in Matthew's account of this healing, in Matthew 12, 10, uh, what we see is that the Pharisees, they were the ones who initiated this interaction, right? They threw the gauntlet down. They challenged the Lord of the Sabbath by saying, hey, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he was just teaching, and they're like, Jesus, 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 come here, come here, come here. Is it lawful for us to heal on the Sabbath? And, and we see their motive. They wanted to accuse him. They wanted to destroy him. So they are the ones who throw the gauntlet down. And uh, as we return to our passage in, in Mark 3, right, they're watching. They're watching Jesus to see if he would heal this man with the withered hand. Now that verb, watching, it's not the normal Greek word for just watching something unfold before you. It could mean to watch closely, to look at something with intense scrutiny, to observe 
closely. But in context, in context, this word takes on the meaning of watching maliciously. Watching with evil intent on the heart. The Pharisees were watching Jesus like criminals casing out a house, casing out a victim. They were watching, looking for an opportunity, wanting to do evil to Jesus. Jesus was such a threat to the Pharisees and their own sense of self-importance that they were watching him like a hawk, looking for any misstep that they could pounce on so that they could eliminate him as a source of competition because he dared go against their extra-biblical laws. Because he dared to challenge them. Because he dared to correct them. Since their, convic since their convictions were wrong and beyond what the scriptures intended. And it's for this reason. It's for this reason they wanted to catch him in the act. Not because healing was wrong, mind you. Right? Not because healing was wrong, but because in their minds, healing on the Sabbath, right, doing good to somebody on the Sabbath, was a violation of God's command to rest on the Sabbath and to keep it holy. The Pharisees aren't dummies. Right? They're pretty smart. And they understood when Jesus said a few weeks ago, or however long it was, when he said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, and the Sabbath is not made for, for uh, or man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for, was made for the man, they understood what he was saying. They understood that Jesus was claiming authority. And so here, as they're watching him, as they challenge him, they're challenging his authority. Do you dare come up against us? Do you dare? Do you dare? All right, basically, do that. Do that again. Do it one more time, right in front of my face. Do it. I dare you. Right? They just needed that evidence. They needed that evidence so that they could get rid of him. Now, this first scene, right, it helps us embrace a proper understanding of God's heart because what we see in context shows us that Jesus doesn't care about these extra-biblical laws. Right? He cares about honoring God, absolutely. Right? He absolutely cares about honoring God, about pleasing God, loving God by making sure that we keep the Sabbath holy. But he doesn't care about these extra laws that get people's attention off God. Or that get people not thinking about God, but thinking about checking off boxes that maybe tell others that we're righteous, tell others that we're holy, but doesn't actually indicate any holiness within. Jesus understands that what matters most in a faithful walk with God is not our ability to check off those boxes. It's not our ability to appear outwardly righteous. What's more important is that faithful reliance on God, right? to rely on Him to provide our inward righteousness. And because of that, because he understands that God cares more about people than he does about the laws, that's why he, uh, that's why he next challenges the system. That's why he next challenges the system. Okay, Mark 3, 3. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. Right? If, if this was you and I said to you, Come up here on stage with me right now. You'd probably be like, mm -mm, I ain't doing that. I'm good where I am, Pastor. I'll just sit over here. You can just you know, do whatever. Right? But you know, this is Jesus talking, right? and he's calling this man forward. He's like, hey, you, get over here. Right? And, and as he does that, as he calls this man with the withered hand forward, Jesus demonstrates that he understands this challenge that was issued by the Pharisees. They, he, that he knew that they were trying to set a trap, and he's like, okay, fine. Go ahead, set your trap. I'm not going to get trapped by you. In fact, Luke's account helps us here again, because in Luke 6, 8, 
it says to him, but he, it says to us, he knew what they were thinking. Or Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. Jesus knew of their jealousy. He knew of the evil intentions of their hearts. And instead of going into self-protection mode, instead of trying to appease the Pharisees by waiting until the next day to heal the man, right? Because, right, he could have waited. Right? Jesus could have waited. This guy is not actively dying. There is no suspicion that he might drop dead within the next few hours. So Jesus could have waited it out. Right? Took the heat off him for a little bit. He could have done that. But instead of that, doing that, he intentionally challenges the Pharisees in return. Verse 4. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill but they kept silent. You see, Jesus, he turns the question posed to him as to whether it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath back on the Pharisees. You see, the question is not simply about whether it's lawful to heal uh, on the Sabbath or not. Technically speaking, there aren't even any laws extra-biblical laws that the Pharisees made about healing like this because only Jesus could heal like this. Or Jesus is not a medical doctor. He is not applying splints to injuries. He is not administering medicine to people. Right? Those are the kind of laws that existed for the Sabbath. That's not, those things don't apply to Jesus. So that's not even technically one of the, uh, a proper question. But let's bring that question for the sake of argument, back to the intent of God's law. Is it lawful? Is it legally right to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Well, right, these extra laws that the Pharisees created, they had their exceptions, like we've, like we've been noting. And basically, if there was any suspicion at all that someone would die then you could break the Sabbath by healing them, right? Even if someone had a sore throat. Apparently, sore throats were, really, uh, were a really big thing back then because in, 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 the, in the laws that they established, it even says, right, if someone has a sore throat and you suspect that they may die, you may give him a drop of medicine in order to save his life, which means that if this person wasn't dying, that drop of medicine, that single drop of medicine would be work and it would be breaking the Sabbath. Right? If we didn't think that this person was going to die. If a child was being born, well, obviously you can't say, sorry, baby, it's the Sabbath. You're going to have to stay in here until tomorrow. Right? You can't do that. So that was also an exception. But basically, any kind of medical service to improve someone's physical condition that was not seen as an emergency was not permitted on the Sabbath. And is that really what God intended uh, in the law to keep the Sabbath holy? Is that what he intended when he gave that law? To let someone who has a non-life-threatening injury suffer all day because... Today's the Sabbath. You can't work today. Right? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Turn with me quickly back to Matthew's account in Matthew 12, 11 to 12. And Jesus, he understands the hypocrisy that's in the hearts of the Pharisees. And so he challenges them and he says, and he says to them, um, Oops. Okay. Uh, he says to him, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on a Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. So basically the idea is, if your sheep like, falls into a pit, their life is in danger, who's going to be like, well, sorry sheep, you'll have to stay here until tomorrow because I can't lift you out. Right? And, and you also have to remember too, right? sheep aren't pets. It's not like this is their dog. It's like, oh, no, I don't want my dog to die. The sheep were part of their lifestyle, part of their, their way of living. Right? And so because it, it, was, um, it was part of you know, how they took care of themselves, they would go in. Right? They would go into that pit. They would pick that sheep up, and they would bring it out. 
But they, that would be work. Right? According to the laws of the Pharisees, that would be work. So the, even the Pharisees would do that. And Jesus says, if you're going to do that for that sheep, if you're going to do that for the sheep, how much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. See, Jesus wanted to show them. You guys are full of hypocrisy. You want to show people that you're holy. You want people to think that you care, but really you don't. Some strong words from Jesus. But what he really wants them to see is, guys, you can't say that you love God. You can't say that you love his people. You can't say that you're truly righteous because your heart shows that you don't actually know God. You know stuff about him, but you don't know him personally, which is why your conclusions as to what we can do in terms of godliness are always wrong, are always missing the point that God had intended when he gave those laws. All right, even when he asked that question, when he asked that question back in Mark 3, right, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? The Pharisees should have said, yes, it is lawful to do good. Right? If, if one of my family members is threatened, it is okay for me to defend them. That's what they should have said. That's what they should have said. It should have been a resounding yes. There should have been no hesitation. And yet what we see is that they say absolutely nothing. They were exposed and they, abso- and they said absolutely nothing. What a display of the Pharisees' twisted philosophy. They created extra rules around God's given laws with that original intent, good intent, of protecting people from sinning against God. But in the process, the rules became more important than the people themselves. Their own, outward, their own ability to outwardly give the appearance of being able to follow these rules were more important than the people themselves. And Jesus rightfully exposes the Pharisees' lack of love for God's people. He needed to do this. He had to show the Pharisees, you guys are going the wrong direction. And not only did he need to tell the Pharisees that, but he needed the people, God's people, to hear it as well, to know it as well, that no matter how many outward acts of righteousness you are able to accomplish and show other people, it it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many of those things you're able to accomplish, you're able to show. If you do not love God, if you do not love Jesus, if you do not genuinely love God's people from the heart, you don't demonstrate that you know God. You don't demonstrate that you have received his forgiveness for your sin. If anything, you might make people wonder, Does this person actually love Jesus? Do they actually understand the forgiveness that Christ has bought for us? And this is what Jesus needed these people to hear. This is what he needed them to understand. Because he loved them. And he wanted to show them that they were going the wrong way. love for God's people should, for God, sorry, a love for God should naturally lead us to have a genuine love for God's people and not just the people outside of these walls. Okay, not just the people outside of these walls, but the people within these walls as well. And I can say that vice versa. I can say that vice versa. 
We have to truly be a loving people, marked by our love for others. And sometimes, yes, sometimes that love does mean that you call people out. That you help them see the faults that they are blind to. That you proclaim to them, actually, you are in trouble with God. That because of your sin, you actually deserve to go to hell. But God, because he loves you, sent his son to die on the cross for you. So that if you believe in him you, and repent of your sins, you might have everlasting life. You might have forgiveness of all of your sin. That's the most loving thing that we can do for the people around us. And so Jesus had to challenge the system to help people see it's not about works. It's not about how many Sunday school classes you teach. It's not about how, it's not about, you know, how, how many weeks that you serve consecutively doing AV or ushering or how, how many times you come up and lead worship on a Friday or on a Sunday. None of those things matter in terms of, um, in, in terms of, growing your own holiness. Okay? It does matter in terms of how we care for one another and how we serve each other. Okay? I'm not saying that we shouldn't serve. We should serve. Okay? But in terms of like if you're getting your own sense of self-worth from actions, or if your identity is wrapped up in what you do for this church, what you do for the body, then I call you to humbly consider whether you've actually repented of your sins, placed your faith in Christ, or if you're thinking that you're a Christian because you look like a Christian, talk like a Christian, do the things that Christian people do, but maybe not all, all doing all those things without actually having a relationship with Christ. And I ask you to, I, I humbly ask you to just consider that for yourselves. And so this correction that Jesus provides the Pharisees, it's something that we need to take, to be mindful of as well. And um, no doubt, because the Pharisees are very observant, they understood what Jesus was doing to them, what he was saying to them, which is why uh, when we get to our next scene, um, we look at it and we, we label it, Jesus' correction is seen. Jesus' Jesus's correction, seen. Okay, Jesus' correction, seen. Verse 5. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Because Jesus knows why the Pharisees are responding to his question with silence, he is angered. He takes, he takes some time. He looks around the room. He's waiting for someone to answer, and they don't. And that grieves him. That angers him. Mark's the only person who tells us about Jesus' emotional response to what he's seeing before him. Right? And this anger that he has, it's not sinful anger, right? because otherwise, if it was sinful anger, then when he died on the cross, he wasn't innocent. He did have sin, and therefore all of our hope would be lost. His anger was righteous anger. It was an anger that was ignited because he cared about the glory of God the Father. Because he cared genuinely about the people. His anger was a result of the hardness of heart of the Pharisees. Now, let me pull the bus aside for just a moment to highlight how amazing our Lord is. See, if you and I were in this situation, we were to encounter a situation where someone lacked remorse for their sin. And we, you know, it's, it's clear as day before our eyes that they've sinned. We call them on it. And they say, no, no. My reaction was perfectly fine. I'm not sinning. 
I have no problem with God. Don't talk to me about my sin. We would probably rightfully be provoked to anger ourselves, right? We would be. We might even say that our anger is justified because of the hardness of this other person's heart. But the difference between our supposedly righteous anger and the righteous anger of Jesus in this moment basically just boils back down to motivation. You see, our anger might start off in the territory of righteous anger. We're behind the line. We're okay. But it is so easy. And those of you who wrestle with anger, you know what I'm talking about. It is so easy to cross that really razor-thin line between, that separates righteous, God-honoring anger and sinful anger. It's so, so easy. And really what it comes down to is self-righteousness. The moment we begin to feel any sense, any sort of self-righteousness in our own hearts, in our anger, is the very moment we've slipped from righteous indignation, righteous anger into sinful anger. Now, let me put it this way. Let's say that you were legitimately wronged by your boss, right? that you're, you've done all the right things, you've done everything according to the book, you follow procedures, and yet, despite the fact that you follow procedures, that you did everything right, that you notify the people that you needed to notify, you get a write-up. And you get blamed for something that you did not do. And wanting to make the situation right, you go up to your boss and you talk to them and say, hey, you know, this is what happened. I was trying to do everything by the book, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And your boss said, I don't care. I don't care. Your explanation is just an excuse. I don't believe you. You're going to have to, you know, this write-up's going to stay on your record. You get one more write-up, you're fired. There's a part of you, right? There's a part of you that will feel some righteous indignation, right? Unless you guys are holier than me, right? You're going to feel some righteous indignation because it's going to be like, dude, that ain't right. That is not cool. This is unfairly being put on me. And notice how quick, right? notice how subtle it became about me. It's not about a violation. It's not solely about the violation of what is right and wrong, but it is about me. And what I believe that I deserve it's what I believe I am entitled to. It's about my, viol- my feelings of violation as my boss wrongs me. Then I get steamed. And now we're solely, now we're fully in the territory of, oh, that's sinful anger. All right, we ought not respond that way. We can talk more about the difference between Righteous anger and sinful anger another time. But you can, just from that one example, hopefully that made sense, but hopefully from that one example, you can see that a lot of times our anger that we feel in life is often sinful anger. It might start off for a moment in righteous anger, but it often slips into sinful, self-righteous anger. But you see, Jesus' anger was not one that led him to a sinful response of anger to the Pharisees. Right? He didn't look at them and be like, what's wrong with you fools? What's the matter with you? You guys dumb or something? He didn't say none of, none of that. He didn't go and slap them all upside the head and be like, you fool, what's wrong with you? How dare you? 
He didn't do any of that. He didn't do any of that. His anger was caused by his grief at their hardness of heart. And he led him to rebuking them, right? To correcting them, wanting them to understand what God's standard is so that they might live by it. And as he looks at the Pharisees with disappointment, his main attention now focuses on that man with a withered hand. And he lets his actions back up his correction. A correction that reminds them that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's not, you know, the Sabbath wasn't supposed to be another God for man to worship. It was supposed to allow for man to worship God. And Jesus corrects them and says, it's not about your rules. It's not about any of your policies, etc., etc. It's about worshiping God. It's about loving God's people. And so he heals this man. He shows compassion to this man. He you know, helps these Pharisees see it's not about these extra things. And Jesus, he simply speaks to this man. Again, right? He doesn't apply no splints. He doesn't put any medication on this man's hand. He doesn't do anything that's work. He, really, he literally just says, just stretch out your hand. All right, stretch out your hand. And the man did that. His hand was restored. It was, and when you see, uh, even when you see that word, um, his hand was restored, it's, uh, the, the meaning of restored is to be brought back to the original good condition, as good as new. As good as new. Before any of that damage happened, that, that's how his hand was restored. And Jesus did no wrong here, right? even according to the standards of the Pharisees, but because the Pharisees understood that Jesus was correcting them, that he was rebuking them, and they didn't like it, their response, verse 6, they went out and immediately began talking, taking counsel together with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Think about that. If we love God and are willing to humble ourselves, to consider the correction that we've received from our fellow brothers and sisters, if we actually find that we've done something wrong, we should, right, we should be led to repentance. We should be willing to own up to whatever we've done. And the only reason why I'm kind of softening uh, this up a, a bit here is because there are times, okay, especially here at this church, at this Bible-believing church, where we can get a little overzealous in correcting each other, where maybe we don't get all the details that we should have got before we went and corrected someone. We're just a little too strong, a little too eager to speak the truth in love, and perhaps, perhaps, okay, perhaps, maybe even in our intent to speak the truth in love, we still fail to love the, in, the individual that we're trying to correct. It's easy. Okay? It's really easy. I've done it. I know some of you have done it when you were younger, not recently. But it's so easy, right? When you first hear Matthew 18, when you first hear the idea that we're supposed to love each other, we're supposed to speak the truth to one another, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Oh, but, oh brother, I'm coming to wound you. Right, you need some wounding right now. It's easy to get super overzealous about that without recognizing that there needs to be compassion on our part too. There is firmness. There is definitely room for firmness, right? Jesus, he didn't, you know, he wasn't a, a, a weak person. Right? He was a very firm person. When he needed to correct, he would call them out. But he was also gentle too. Right? There's room for both. There's room for both. There's a balance between the two. Sometimes what we believe we see, what we believe, what we believe we've heard, what we believe we understand, 
may not actually be the case. And so the correction that we provide for others might not actually be warranted. Or at least warranted at that time, at that place, etc., etc. Which is why, okay, which is why I'm saying that if we're corrected by somebody else, and we don't feel like it applies, we don't feel like it fits, we feel like they're judging us, and they have no right to do so, if that's what we feel, all I'm asking, all I'm saying is humble yourself and just consider, is there a shred of this that is true? Is there a shred of what I'm being told that is true of me? It's true of how I live my life. And so no matter how mad, no matter how defensive I might want to be because this person didn't talk to me right, because their tone was off uh, and was mean and, and not, you know, not trying to win me over, um, wasn't done the right way, no matter what they said, how they said it, et cetera, et cetera, am I willing to humble myself, look and see whether that there's something that I need to change and actually change it? That's hard for us to do, right? Because our pride gets in the way. Our pride's like, no, no, no. It don't matter whether I have sin issues. We all have sin issues. They shouldn't have talked to me with that tone. Sure. They might have sinned against you with how they approached you. Sure. They might have approached you with the wrong tone. But two sins don't make it right. Two sins don't make it right. We have to humble ourselves. We have to consider and respond. Or how, does, how does God want me to respond to this right now? Do, do I have a right to be angry at this moment? Do I have a right to defend myself? Or does God have something here for me to learn? Right? That should be, okay, should be the way that people who love Jesus strive to operate. That's how, that should be how we should strive to operate. However, in the case of these Pharisees, that was not their response. Right? The correction that Jesus provided for them, it was right. It was a right assessment of what they were believing, what they were thinking, what they were doing. This correction was appropriate. And yet the response to Jesus' exposure of their hypocrisy and sin was not humble consideration. It was not brokenness. It was not repentance. Rather, they just got up, left, and started making their plans. Started making their plans to destroy him. They were so upset with Jesus that they were willing to partner with anyone they believed would help them accomplish their goal of getting rid of Jesus. Now, when Mark says that the Pharisees were seeking how they might destroy Jesus, he's not talking about destroying Jesus' reputation. He's not talking about canceling Jesus. The Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. But, by the way, killing Jesus without clearly sinning on their part would not have been an easy thing for them to do. They needed a loophole to try and make it legal to kill Jesus. And so that's why they team up with the Herodians to try and find a way to find any avenue that they can use to kill Jesus while still maintaining their outward facade of righteousness. Now, just like the partnership with John's disciples in Mark 2, the Pharisees' partnership with the Herodians was a very odd partnership. We don't really have too much information about the Herodians, but what we do know is that these people were basically ethnically Jewish, but they were secular Jews. They didn't care about the laws. They didn't care about Yahweh. They, uh, they didn't care about Israel. 
Their loyalties were to Rome. Their loyalties were to Greek and Roman culture and to the government that Rome put in place, which, of course, is the government of Herod, which is why they're called the Herodians. Essentially, they acted like a lot of immigrant kids who come here to America act when it comes to their culture, right? Anything that marks me ethnically as whatever, from, from wherever I came, I'm going to reject that because I need to be an American, right? If I, if I don't look like an American, I'm weird and I don't want to be weird, and so I just want to assimilate into the culture. And that's what the Herodians were. Now, naturally, these Herodians would have, looked, would have, been, looked at as, uh, would have been looked at by the Pharisees as traitors. Right? How dare you not worship God? How dare you not care about your countrymen? How dare you not care about Israel? So they would not have worked well together. And yet, these two unlikely partners find a common enemy in Jesus because he threatens the way that they want society to look for, uh, the way that they want society to look. He threatens their power. He threatens their ability to influence. And so as we look at the Pharisees' response to Jesus' correction, we should be grieved that their response to his correction was more rebellion. But also, we should be humbled. We should be humbled. Because were it not for the grace of God, were it not for the Holy Spirit working in our lives, we could be just like them. We could be just like them. Haters and rejecters of the truth. Despisers of correction. But praise be to God that many of us have heard the good news of the gospel and have repented of our sins and have returned to our Lord. Praise be to God that though we will not be perfect in how we follow after Christ, he graciously works in our hearts to help us respond to the truth, at least eventually. All right, we'll get there. Sometimes it might take a little more time than it should, but eventually we'll get there. All right, and for those of us who are genuinely saved, we cannot help but become more like Christ because we have God's help. Right? He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it or will be faithful to complete it. So for those of you who may be here this evening who have not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I ask you to consider the example of the Pharisees. Consider how their response to being corrected of their self-righteousness was to dig their heels in more and commit more sin. I ask you to humbly consider whether the, whether the Bible is right about who we all are deep down inside. That we're not inherently good, but that we are actually inherently sinful, inherently evil. And that because of that sin, because of that evil that dwells in our hearts, we actually rightfully deserve God's punishment, God's wrath against all sin, against all evil. And yet, despite that bad news, despite that bad news, God is willing to forgive everyone who confesses their sin to him and desires to turn away from their sinful lifestyle. If, that, if you are here this evening and you have not repented of your sin, you've not believed in Jesus Christ, please consider the great love that God has for you, yes, but also the great wrath that you rightfully deserve. He wants to save you from that wrath, from that punishment that you've earned for yourself. But he's also the one who provides you the way out. He's also the one who pays off that debt for you. And so would you receive that forgiveness today? The good intentions of others in our lives can certainly have a positive effect in the lives that they were meant to help. However, what we've seen all too often is that good intentions can also do much harm to others as well. Consider that more 
popular saying that I shared with you before we got into the sermon. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. This, this saying highlights how good intentions can be true enough where we can understand the behavior that God wants to see in his people, but it can also be divergent enough from God's concern for his people, from God's true heart to lead people far from him. And that's what we mean by the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Right? I mean, even if you want to think back to church history, right before the Protestants split from the Catholics, right, the Catholic church was the only church around, really. It was a singular church. And as they began to add in things that were not in Scripture, as they were beginning to add in this idea of confession to the priest, the fact that the Pope himself is infallible, the fact that, um, well, back in the day, that you needed indulgences to help, to help reduce the amount of time that you spend in purgatory, which we don't believe in, by the way. Right? As they begin to add all these extra things that were not in the Scriptures, it, what initially was supposed to be good in, what was initially supposed to help people get to, uh, get to the Lord, worship God, love God, eventually began to diverge enough where people are far from him, even though they claim that they are Christians. And that's what we mean when we say that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. As we study Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees over the lawfulness of healing on the Sabbath, we can recognize that the Pharisees certainly had good intentions when they made these extra laws. They wanted to help God's people be holy. They wanted to help God's people love him more through their outward actions. But in the process, they got so caught up with the method, they forgot the reason why they adopted the method to begin with. Which is why Jesus confronted them and expose their hypocrisy. Thankfully, even though we know that the Pharisees were allowed to succeed eventually in their plot to kill Jesus, we know that Jesus' death was actually not the end for him. Right? It was all part of the plan. His death had provided a way for all who would believe in him to achieve a righteousness before God that exceeded the righteousness of the Pharisees. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to you? That we are supposed to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees was one that caused the disciples a lot of uh, panic. Who can be more holy than the Pharisees? God's people can. Why? Because their righteousness isn't dependent upon how many check boxes we can check off. Because our righteousness is dependent upon Christ. His righteousness is ours. So we can, because of that, have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. And to back up the point that God, that God cares about us and our hearts as we follow after him and not necessarily just all the rules and regulations and things, cultural things that we bring into our understanding of what it looks like to be holy, what it means to be holy. Let me point you to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, 16 to 17. David, he says this about God, the very same God who instituted the laws and the sacrifices. He says this, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Yes, the laws and the offerings were all put in place for a reason, but they were not put in place for their own sake. They were not more important than worshiping the Lord himself. And so... Even as we begin to go from here, think about how we can apply this. 
This is not a... This is not about like, hey guys, you need to serve more. Hey guys, you need to give more. Otherwise, you're not holy enough. It's not about that. It never has been about that. It's not about like whether you care about the things that I care about, whether you're convicted by the same convictions that I am in terms of what the Christian life should look like. What's most important is that you love God that you love Christ, that you desire to put Christ on, to put off your sin and become the man or the woman that God made you to be, right? to be sanctified, to be more like Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God, right, that our standing before him is not based on our ability to do acts of righteousness. Thanks be to God that it's based on his provision of righteousness to us through Christ's death and resurrection. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for your, your kindnesses to us. How you provide for us through your word and through your church all that we need to live lives that please you. Lord, we know that it is easy for us. It is so easy for us to look to extra things, external things, to make ourselves feel better about our lives, to make ourselves feel closer to you. And yet, Lord, and yet, it is not the things that we're able to do to appeal to our, our feelings that make us righteous. It is Christ who makes us righteous. It is you who makes us righteous. And we pray, Father, that you would help us all strive to love you more and consequently, we would love others more too. We pray, Father, that we would not lose the gospel as we're trying to live Christian lives, but that we would actually live out the gospel as we live out Christian lives. We're grateful, Father, for this evening. We pray that you would be with us as we have fellowship. Uh, as we meditate on the word together, uh, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.